What throws most Warren watchers is that he will sometimes buy into a business when prospects seem the bleakest. He did this most recently with his early 1990s purchase of stock in Wells Fargo Bank. Previous investments of this kind include the purchase of stock in American Express in the late 60s and the purchase of his interest in Geico in the 70s. To understand this, you have to remember that Graham believed that, since the majority of players in the stock market were short-term oriented, they placed 90% of their valuing effort into interpreting present results. That is to say, if a company had a bad year, the stock market would beat the price of the stock way down, even if all the preceding years had produced excellent results. To Benjamin Graham, Warren's teacher, this presented great opportunity to the investor who could take a long-term view. Warren discovered that short-term volatility is what creates opportunity for the long-term investor. Let me give you a practical example. Let's say that you own a small ski resort. You've been in the business for the last 30 years, and every year you made net profits of approximately $300,000. Occasionally, you had a really great year, and you made around $600,000. You also occasionally had a really bad year when it didn't snow, and you didn't make any money. Would you value your ski resort business for less money in the year that it didn't snow, and you didn't make any money? Probably not. You know that occasional weather cycles will once in a while bring you a really bad year, just as they will bring you an occasional really great year. Those are just the ups and downs of your business. And if you were valuing your business, you would take those ups and downs into account. Makes sense, doesn't it? But if your ski resort was a publicly traded company, the stock market, being short-term motivated, would revalue your business every year as the earnings fluctuated. In really great years, they would value the ski resort at a lot more and send the price of the stock sky high. Likewise, in bad years, when it didn't snow, they would hammer the price of the stock into the ground. This kind of event happens periodically to almost all businesses, regardless of whether they are a commodity type or have a consumer monopoly working in their favor. The television and newspaper industry are dependent on advertising to produce income. However, advertising rates and revenue fluctuate with the business activity of the entire economy. If the economy falls into a recession, then advertising revenues fall as well, and newspapers and television networks make less money. Seeing this loss of revenues, the stock market reacts, causing the stock price of the newspaper or television company to plummet. Capital Cities ABC, Inc. fell victim to this weird, manic-depressive stock market behavior in 1990. Because of a business recession, advertising revenues started to drop, and Capital Cities reported that its net profit for 1990 would be approximately the same as in 1989. The stock market, used to Capital Cities growing its per-share earnings at approximately 27% a year, reacted violently to this news and in the space of six months drove the price of its stock down from $63.30 a share to $38 a share. Capital Cities lost 40% of its per-share price all because it projected that things were going to be the same as they were last year. As we mentioned earlier, 
1995, Capital Cities and the Walt Disney Company agreed to merge. This caused the market to revalue Capital City stock upwards to $125 a share. If you bought it in 1990 for $38 a share and sold it in 1995 for $125 a share, your pre-tax annual compounding rate of return would be approximately 26%, with a per-share profit of $87. The point is this. If you have identified companies that have excellent management or a great consumer monopoly or both, it is possible to predict that they will most certainly survive a recession and more than likely come out of it in a better position than before. Recessions are hard on the weak, but they clean the field for the strong to take an even larger share when things improve. Occasionally, a company with a great consumer monopoly going in its favor does something that is both stupid and correctable. For Warren, that might be a buying opportunity as well. From 1936 to the mid-1970s, Geico made a fortune insuring preferred drivers by operating at low cost and eliminating agents by operating via direct mail. But by the early 70s, new management decided that it would try and grow the company further by selling insurance to just about anyone who knocked on their door. This new philosophy of insuring any and all brought Geico a large number of drivers who were accident-prone. More accidents meant that Geico would lose more money, which it did. In 1975, it reported a net loss of $126 million which placed it on the brink of insolvency. In response to this crisis, GEICO's board of directors hired Jack Byrne as the new chairman and president. Once on board, he approached Warren about investing in the company. Warren had only one concern, and that was whether GEICO would drop the unprofitable practice of insuring any and all drivers and return to the time-tested format of insuring just preferred drivers at low cost by direct mail. Burns said that was the plan, and Warren made his investment. Here's another example of Warren seeing a corporate mistake as an investment opportunity. In the mid-60s, American Express, through a warehousing subsidiary, verified the existence of about $60 million worth of tanks filled with salad oil, owned by commodities dealer Anthony DeAngelis. DeAngelis, in turn, put up the salad oil as collateral for $60 million in loans. When DeAngelis failed to pay back the loans, his creditors moved to foreclose on the salad oil. But to the surprise of the creditors, the collateral they had loaned money against didn't exist. Since American Express had inadvertently verified the existence of the non-existent salad oil, they were held ultimately responsible to the creditors for their losses. American Express ended up having to pay off the creditors to the tune of approximately $60 million. This loss essentially sucked out the majority of American Express's equity base, and Wall Street responded by slamming its stock into the ground. Warren saw this and reasoned that even if the company lost the majority of its equity base, the inherent consumer monopolies of the credit card operations and traveler's checks business still remained intact. 
This loss of capital would not cause any long-term damage to American Express. Seeing this, Warren invested 40% of Buffett Partnership's investment capital in its stock and acquired for the Buffett Partners approximately 5% of American Express's outstanding stock. Two years later, the market reappraised the stock upward and Warren sold it and pocketed a cool 20 million profit. Think of it this way. Let's say you sued Coca-Cola and in 1993 won a judgment of 2.2 billion, or roughly what the company would have reported in net earnings that year. The stock market, hearing the news of your judgment, would kill Coca-Cola's stock price. But in truth, this loss would have little or no effect on the amount of money Coca-Cola would make in 1994. The intrinsic consumer monopoly Coca-Cola possesses would still be intact. Effectively, your $2.2 billion judgment would have been the same as if Coca-Cola had paid out a dividend of $2.2 billion in 1993. But instead of paying out the dividends to its shareholders, Coca-Cola would have paid it out to you. In the next year, 1994, Coca-Cola will show a net profit of $2.2 billion or better. By the time 1995 rolls around, no one will have remembered your 1993 judgment and the price of Coca-Cola's stock will have returned to its pre-judgment price, how soon they forget. The lesson here is that the volatility of a company's stock price caused by a recession, as in the case of Capital Cities, or the odd event, as in the case of Geico or American Express, can create an opportunity for the business perspective investor who has an eye on the long term. Earlier, we talked about how inflation can weaken certain companies more than others, and to avoid companies which must retool factories at increasing costs but are in no position to raise their prices to cover those costs. Well, now it's time to discuss the positive side of inflation. For Warren Buffett, inflation can be an opportunity. He didn't always see it as such. For many years, he felt that inflation was his worst enemy. And for the average investor, it is. However, homeowners who locked into 30-year 5% mortgages in the 1960s benefited from inflation, increasing their incomes while their mortgage payments remained fixed. Corporations also benefited in the 60s by convincing investors to loan them money for long periods of time at a fixed rate, which allowed them to pay back the loans in the future with inflated dollars. That $4,000 they loaned General Motors by purchasing a bond back in the 60s would have bought them 100% of a new car. When General Motors paid it back to them in the 90s, 30 years later, the return of the $4,000 in principle would buy them only approximately 25% of a new car. They have experienced a real loss of purchasing power. Almost no investment escapes the taxation of inflation. However, in 1983, Warren developed a theory that investments in companies that benefited from a strong consumer monopoly and required little capital to continue operations, actually benefited from the effects of inflation. Invest in these businesses, and inflation helps you as an investor. It makes you richer.
Warren has cited C's Candy Company to explain this phenomenon. In 1972, C's was earning around $2 million on $8 million of net tangible assets. Tangible assets are things like manufacturing plants and equipment, as opposed to intangible assets such as patents and copyrights. That means that C's plant and equipment and inventory produced, after all expenses and taxes, 25% earnings. Berkshire Hathaway paid roughly $25 million dollars in 1972 for C's, which, working that calculator again, equates to an after-tax rate of return of 8%. Compare this to government bonds in 1972, which were paying a pre-tax rate of return of 5.8%. C's candy after corporate income tax annual rate of return of 8% doesn't look too bad. Now let's say that a steel manufacturer, with poorer economics than C's, produced the same $2 million in net earnings, but on $18 million in net tangible assets. Blast furnaces for making steel cost considerably more than cooking pots for making candy. Two different businesses, both with net earnings of $2 million. The only difference is that C's produces its $2 million on a net tangible asset base of $8 million and the steel manufacturer produces its $2 million on a net tangible asset base of $18 million. Now let's add in inflation. Over the next 10 years, prices double, as do sales and earnings. So both our businesses experience a doubling of earnings to $4 million. It's easy to figure out because all you have to do is sell the same number of units at the new inflated price, which everybody pays for with their new inflated salary. But there is just one problem. Production equipment wears out and eventually needs to be replaced. When these two companies go to replace their net tangible asset bases, the one that had a base of $8 million, C's, is going to have to come up with $16 million. Prices doubled not only for candy, but for plants and equipment. But the steel manufacturer, with a net tangible asset base of $18 million, is going to have to come up with $36 million, more than twice the money. Which company would you rather own? C's, which has to come up with $16 million, or the steel manufacturer, which has to come up with $36 million to stay in business? Get the point? The steel business manufacturer is going to require $20 million more of investment to produce the amount of earnings equivalent to C's. Inflation, though harmful to a great many businesses, can actually benefit the shareholders of companies that have a consumer monopoly working in their favor. Warren believes that diversification is something people do to protect themselves from their own stupidity. They lack the intelligence and expertise to make large investments in just a few businesses, so they must hedge against the folly of ignorance by having their capital spread out among many different investments. Benjamin Graham's investment strategy required that he have literally 100 or more stocks in his portfolio. He did this to hedge against the possibility that some of his investments would never perform as businesses and as stocks. 
The nature of the business, he felt, was locked into the numbers, and he was not all that concerned with really getting to know the businesses he owned. Warren followed Graham's strategy for a while, but in the end found that it was more like owning a zoo than a stock portfolio. Warren was greatly influenced by the writings of the late, great British economist, John Maynard Keynes. Keynes, a person of noted expertise in the field of investment, said he'd made the majority of his money in just a few different investments, the underlying businesses whose investment value he understood. In time, Warren adopted the concentrated portfolio approach, which means that he holds a small number of investments he really understands and intends holding for a long period of time. This allows the question of whether to allocate capital to an investment to be approached with the utmost seriousness. Warren believes that it is the seriousness with which he addresses the questions of what to invest in and at what price that decreases the risk. It is his commitment to the strategy of investing only in exceptional businesses at prices that make business sense that reduces his chances for loss. Warren has often said that a person would make fewer bad investment decisions if he were limited to just making 10 in his lifetime. Just 10. You would put a little work into making those 10 decisions, don't you think? It's amazing that intelligent, hard-working individuals think nothing of taking a large portion of their net worth and investing it in a company they know little or nothing about. If you asked them to invest in a local business, they would pepper you with questions. But let some stockbroker call them on the phone, and the next thing you know, they are partial owners of some exotic business. Bernard Baruch said, Time and energy are required to keep abreast of the forces that may change the value of a security. While one can know all there is to know about a few issues, one cannot possibly know all one needs to know about a great many issues. Baruch, by the way, lived to be a very old and a very, very wealthy man. There are many ways to make and lose money on Wall Street. Some stock is always shooting to the moon, and around every corner, one of the chosen has fallen from grace. As Benjamin Graham loved to say, quoting Horace, Many shall be restored that now are fallen, and many shall fall that are now in favor. Most people, and that includes investment managers, jump from one strategy to another and in the process lose course and end up clinging to fear and greed as their guide through the turbulent seas of finance. Warren found religion in Graham. Graham gave Warren the conviction to weather the storms of doubt which a falling market can foster even amongst the most courageous of Wall Street warriors. The realization that good things come to those who wait and who know what they are doing may seem a bit biblical, but Warren found this in Graham's philosophy of investing strictly from a business perspective. And Warren has followed that particular strategy with all the zeal of a Muslim on his way to Mecca, during those times in which the strategy offered no opportunities, when it cannot be applied, Warren just kicks back and waits. What do you mean he waits? That's right, he just sits back and waits. And sure enough, he has never had to wait very long before the market offers up to him a perfect opportunity 
to practice his particular brand of business perspective investing. Warren equates his strategy to waiting for the perfect pitch in a ball game in which the only way to strike out is to swing at the ball. Warren stands at bat carefully waiting for the perfect pitch, and only on the perfect pitch will he swing his business perspective bat. Sure enough, after thousands of pitches and sometimes a year or two of waiting for the perfect pitch, a consumer monopoly with excellent management and a fantastic price comes sliding gently across the plate and Warren slams it into the bleachers. A home run for Warren and another one billion for the Berkshire Hathaway team. Are you that patient? I don't know many people who are. Instead, the money is burning a hole in your pocket and you want that investment opportunity right now. Let's say that you just inherited one million dollars. One of the first questions that should come to your mind is, how should this money be invested? But if I told you to sit on it until something comes up at an attractive price, you would look at me like I was crazy. If you phoned a stockbroker, more than likely he would have all kinds of ideas, because if he didn't have a lot of ideas, you would go find one that did. Fund managers and individual investors all have a difficult time sitting patiently, waiting for the perfect pitch. Sure, they may know what a perfect pitch looks like, but waiting is something you do in an airport. After a while, their impatience sends them wandering off, conjuring new images of the perfect pitch. Before they know it, they have jettisoned the old and eloped with the newest trend. If people choose their spouses as they do their stocks, no marriage would last a week. Can you imagine listing all the attributes you'd find desirable in a spouse and giving yourself only one week to come up with a candidate you want? You wouldn't do it. And you would tell anybody who suggested it that they were crazy. Yet this is what happens all the time in the investment game. You know this is true, because if I gave you one million dollars tomorrow, you would immediately be out trying to invest it. Maybe in a certificate of deposit down at the local bank, or maybe a stock purchase through your broker, who, by the way, would be more than happy to suggest numerous ways for you to profit from his wisdom. Every day you would read in the Wall Street Journal about some stock that doubled in the last six months, and you'd be wondering why you were not on that ticket. It takes only one, you know. Got to keep that money working. But changing investment strategies in midstream is a lot like trying to change careers in midstream. Let's say you are training to be a doctor, and after four years of school, you read about some lawyer who made a million dollars, and you decide that lawyers make more money and that you want to be a lawyer. So you drop out of medical school and enroll in law school, and after a year or two, you discover that MBAs on Wall Street are making a huge amount of money, and you decide to become an MBA instead of a lawyer and drop out of law school and enroll in business school. The scenario could go on forever, and the result would be that you would end up with nothing. Whereas, if you had stayed in medical school, you would now be a doctor making good money. The same applies in the business world. You don't see Ford Motor Company trying to build computers, and you don't see IBM trying to build cars. Each has its own way of doing things, and each has its own products, and each spent years learning its businesses. 
Berkshire Hathaway owns two distinctly different businesses that are only a few miles apart and are run by families related to one another. One family runs one of the largest jewelry stores in the United States, Borsheim's, and the other owns the largest furniture store in the country, Nebraska Furniture Mart. Because each business is so specialized, the management of one would be lost trying to run the other, and vice versa. Acquiring the necessary acumen to run the business would be enormously expensive and would probably severely damage both businesses. The same applies to investment strategies. It takes a long time to learn the subtleties of what you are doing and to be able to distinguish investment situations that are truly opportunities from those that invite folly. Are you a market timer, arbitrage player, day trader, emerging growth strategist, old-school Gramian, or new-school Buffetologist. Each strategy has its rules, and jumping from one to another is like constantly repeating the first grade. Warren so subscribes to this theory of waiting for the perfect pitch that in 1971, when the market was really high, he folded up his investment fund, telling his investors that the strategy he had been using was no longer applicable to the market in which they were dealing. Instead of going forward with another strategy, one he was not comfortable with, he closed up shop and returned the money to his investors. For two more years, the market stayed high and many people made tons of money on what was a wild ride. But Warren just sat there on the sidelines, waiting. Then one day it happened. The market bombed and stocks sank like bricks. And who was waiting at the bottom of that pit of fear but Warren? Loaded for bear, that is. Loaded with cash to buy into a bear market. And as he has said, suddenly Wall Street was giving things away. And his business perspective investing strategy told him to start swinging his money bat at what were some unbelievable pitches. Probably the greatest pitch he swung at during this time was the Washington Post. The bottom line of all of this is that you must stay with the strategy and not waver from it if you are to stand strong when all the doubting Thomases are shouting, Fire! and jumping ship. It also means that when the whole world is seeing gold under every rock, you let sound business perspective judgment dictate your buy decision and not the mad enthusiasm of the crowd. So be patient and wait for that screaming by pitch. It will come. And remember that it is the stock market pessimism, not optimism, that throws the most profitable pitches. If you find you have a knack for Warren's way of investing, you might want to find investors to join with. Where should you look? Warren started with family and friends, and that is where anyone should start. Charity begins at home, and home is the first place to look for potential investors. After you have covered the home turf, you need to start approaching anybody you know, or don't know, who has money. Warren used to throw little investment get-togethers at his house. Susie, his wife, would put on a pot of chicken soup and invite people to hear the wisdom of the young investment genius espousing the wisdom of Benjamin Graham. After Warren was in business for a few years, 
he started raising the amount required of potential investors to get into the partnership. Remember, you are limited to 100 investors, so you want the wealthiest investors in town to be your limited partners, and you especially want the people who are making money, like doctors. Warren was famous for holding court with his doctor friends at a little chicken dinner place called Rose's Lodge. A plate of fried chicken, a few beers, a couple of words of Gramian wisdom, and the checkbooks would come dancing out. Several of those early investors are now worth over $100 million. Actually, Lawrence Tisch became a limited partner and made some big money after he caught wind of Warren from Howard Newman, who had been Graham's partner at Graham Newman. Now back in the old days when income taxes were 50% or better for high-income types, it was advantageous to invest through a corporation, which was taxed at a lower rate. The only catch was that you could not own more than 49% of the company, or the IRS considered it a personal holding company, and would tax you at personal income tax rates, which were, yes, 50% or better. The problem with personal holding companies still exists, so watch out. So Warren went out and bought himself 48% of a textile company called, you guessed it, Berkshire Hathaway. The textile business, though once great, was a commodity business, and Berkshire's mill just couldn't compete. Warren, upon seeing this, did a very smart thing and started buying insurance companies with the working capital of Berkshire. In essence, money that at one time would have been put into new looms was spent buying the National Indemnity Insurance Company. Why insurance companies? It's not that they are such a great buy. The economics of the business attracted Warren. An insurance company makes money from the pool of funds, or float, by investing it. And what is Warren great at? Investing. In 1996, Berkshire's insurance business had acquired a float of $6.7 billion. This means that in 1996, Warren had the free use of $6.7 billion worth of other people's money. Money that someday would go to pay claims, but till then was free for Warren to invest with. The key to making a billion dollars in the investment game is to learn how to make an average compounded rate of return of 23% or better. Start a limited investment partnership, inspire your investors, and after you get enough money, buy yourself 49% of an insurance company. P.S. I almost forgot. You have to get your friends to buy the other 2% of the insurance company so that you can effectively control 51% of the voting stock of the company, which means you get to control the board of directors who in turn control the company. Sounds easy? It was for Warren, and it might be for you, if you let business perspective investing guide the way. Well, you've made it to the end of the program. Hopefully we have done our job and have given you a new understanding of the history and tools that go into being a Buffetologist. For those of you who want to know more, we recommend the popular Internet Buffet Watch website, which does an excellent job covering all things Buffet, and can be found at www.buffetwatch.com. That's one word, capital B, capital W, on the World Wide Web.
We leave you with this final bit of advice. If you really want to learn concepts behind business perspective investing, you probably will have to listen to this tape more than once. It's a paradigm shift in thinking about investments and therefore takes time to sink in. If you're interested in learning the mathematical formulas behind Warren's business perspective investing, you might consider looking at the book version of this Buffettology program to study the quantitative section at the back. It is not difficult to learn the math, but you need to see the formulas in writing while holding that special calculator in hand. Then you'll be able to make those judgments to buy or not to buy with the cold hard facts right at your fingertips. Buffetology does take some effort to master, as does any strategy that works. But once mastered, it can be very rewarding. I'm Mary Buffett. Thanks for listening, and good luck in all your investment endeavors. Buffettology the previously unexplained techniques that have made Warren Buffett the world's most famous investor was written by Mary Buffett and David Clark and read by Mary Buffett. It was abridged for audio by Marty Goldenson. Editing and post-production by Common Mode, Paul Fowley, technical director. The mix engineer was Rick Bradley. The associate producer was Florence Barrow Adams. Buffetology was produced and directed by Susan Perrin. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Buffetology, the previously unexplained techniques that have made Warren Buffett the world's most famous investor by Mary Buffett and David Clark is available in hardcover from Scribner. Thank you.